Dear Father, I thank you, Father, for this church. Thank you for the people in this church and the leaders in this church. And I pray, Father, you will bless each of us as we serve this body. And I pray, Father, that you'll teach us this morning out of your word. And, Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're back to the trial of Jesus in Matthew 26. You know, he's standing in the home of Caiaphas right now. That's where we left him, in the house of the high priest Caiaphas. That's the second high priest he's seen that night. And this moment is the end of a long path of effort on the part of these religious leaders to discredit Jesus. You remember they started way back when he was still in the Galilee, looking to trap him in some breaking of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the rabbinical rule book that they used in that day and still use in in Orthodox circles today. And they hoped that they would find something he had done that violated that rule book such that they could then accuse him before the people and discredit him. And then they assumed that once he was discredited, all the people would just stop following him. They They wouldn't look up to him anymore. But Jesus did something they didn't expect. He declared that the Mishnah was invalid and he didn't have to follow it. And then the people, in turn, loved it because they really didn't care much for Pharisees. And when they saw Jesus thumbing his nose at those pompous, hypocritical guys, they ate it up. So now that posed a problem. They they needed a new tactic and they went after more serious charges. They wanted to charge Jesus with either blasphemy or insurrection, both of which carry the death penalty. Blasphemy was punishable by death under Jewish law, and insurrection was punishable by death under Roman law. And so this became their new tactic. And now in this moment in the high priest's home, they believe they have finally found their way to those charges. Last time we studied, you remember we were watching witness after witness come forward in this mock trial and make claims against Jesus, and none could agree, and they contradicted one another until two of these so-called witnesses mostly agreed on charging that Jesus said he could tear down the Roman temple and rebuild it in three days. Or the Jewish temple, sorry. Now, under Roman law, threatening to tear down a building was punishable as a crime, but the Jewish leaders knew that wasn't going to be enough because it wasn't credible. Who was going to believe that Jesus by himself had the power to tear down Herod's temple? So they needed something more, something that would incur death under Jewish law. And the easiest way for a Jew to be trapped under Jewish law was uh, for the crime of blasphemy, because blasphemy is, is such an easy thing to charge someone with. It's somewhat nebulous. Uh, you know, it's like the old saying, what is pornography? Well, I know it when I see it. It's the same idea. What is blasphemy? Well, it has a definition, but it can be used in a variety of circumstances. So their hope was that they trap him in that way under some uh, misstatement that then they could use against him. And the high priest uh, tries to stimulate this in verse 64 by putting Jesus under oath and forcing him to talk in the trial. Remember this last week? He says, tell us whether you are the son of God. And this is his attempt to get Jesus to blaspheme. And because he's required to speak uh, under the oath that was administered to him, Jesus complied. He said, it is as you said, you have spoken correctly, meaning I am the son of God. And then Jesus added a second statement. He says, there's a day coming when you will see me seated at the right hand of power. That is God the Father. All right, that's what Jesus said. Now look at the reaction. That's where we pick up, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Well, 
In response to Jesus' words, the high priest tears his robes. This is a, a very traditional Eastern and very Jewish way of showing distress. People tear their clothes in the Bible, it seems, all the time, right? And when a high priest tore his clothes, it sent shockwaves through the people of Israel. It was a huge issue. If he was upset, everyone was upset. You know, the old saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, if the high priest ain't happy, ain't nobody happy in Israel. So as a result, it was highly prejudicial for a high priest to tear his robes during a court trial. I mean, imagine how you would feel if you were on the jury in a trial and the defendant is on the stand and he's giving testimony to defend himself. And in the middle of that testimony, what if the judge stood up and said, this is absurd, and then sat back down? Clearly, if you're on the jury at that moment, you're starting to wonder, well, I, I guess we can't believe this guy because the judge is obviously not believing him, right? It's prejudicial. So for that very reason, it was illegal under Jewish law for the high priest to tear his clothes during a trial of the Sanhedrin because it would influence the trial. The, there was an exception to this, though. The one exception under Jewish law was he could tear his robes if there had been blasphemy spoken during the trial because that was honoring God in that respect. And that's obviously what the high priest is trying to do here. He's trying to make the point, in verse 66, that this is blasphemy, and to be more convincing about it, he tears his clothes in front of the rest of the Sanhedrin council who form the jury in this trial. But when you look at what Jesus actually said, the two statements we just talked about, neither of them are blasphemy. First of all, what is blasphemy? Well, it is speaking in a way that dishonors or diminishes the name of God or the character of God. But as you can tell, that's a very broad definition, right? What, what do I say that diminishes God? What can diminish his character, for example? Well, in this case, they worry about the two things Jesus said, and looking at them, they don't meet that definition. First of all, you can blaspheme God in some cases just by using his name. And I don't mean the name God. God is not God's name. God's name is not given to us in the Bible. The Jews would never write it down. Why do we not know the name of God in the Bible? Because to write the name of God, they felt diminished God. And that's blasphemy. So they neglected to write it. They intentionally would not do so. So in this case, look at what Jesus says. Did he dishonor the name? Did he dishonor the character of God? Did he even say the name of God? No, in all cases. In the first case, he said to the high priest, it is as you said. In other words, he didn't even say anything. He let the words of the high priest stand, and he simply agreed with them. So if that was blasphemy, who committed it first? The high priest would have, right? So clearly, they're not charging him with that statement. Otherwise, it, again, it would have been blasphemy for both men. And if you're thinking, well, just the claim to be Messiah is blasphemy, not if it's true, not if it's an accurate statement, in fact, if they thought he was simply lying about that, they wouldn't have charged him with blasphemy. They would have charged him with perjury, with lying. Now, that, that statement had no blasphemy in it. And then secondly, when he says, I'll be seated next to the right hand of God, do you notice how he says it in verse 64? Back in four, uh, verse 64 from last week, he says, he will be seated where? At the right hand of power, which we know is a reference to God, clearly, but he intentionally avoids naming God there by referring to him in that other form, so as not to be blaspheming God in any sense. 
So Jesus has gone out of his way not to say anything that could be construed as blasphemy. Nevertheless, this is the closest thing the high priest is going to get that night to a charge, and he's not going to let it go. So with that, he charges him with blasphemy. He says to the, to the jury, uh, we don't have any more need for witnesses, right? Which is kind of silly because the whole problem with the witnesses up to this point has been that they have done nothing except undermine the case of the high priest. They have contradicted one another. They have, they have said silly things. So he's saying we don't need any more witnesses very conveniently because he doesn't want any more witnesses at this point. He just wants to move on. Just let's end this thing. Let's get to the jury verdict. Let's move on. He calls for a vote quickly, now, as in immediately. And with this, you see mistake after mistake, sin after sin stacking up here in this trial. There are, there's something like, by some scholars count, there's something like 25 or 30 violations of Jewish trial law in this one case. In fact, there are so many violations of Jewish trial law here that this has to be the greatest miscarriage of justice in history, and I don't say that with any hyperbola. When you think about it, this is the only time in history when a sinless person was on trial. The only time. And if you put sinless people on trial, the only right result would be what? (laughs) Exoneration, right? There is no chance you can convict a sinless person. And yet, here you have God himself on trial, and God's people find him guilty of blaspheming God. Can you come up with a more ironic example than this? How does something so ridiculous even happen? He was convicted in the only way possible. The only way you take a sinless person who is also God and you convict them of blaspheming God is if everyone else involved in that process is doing nothing but sinning. If it's nonstop corruption, that's the only way you get to that result. And that makes this trial the perfect illustration of a very important biblical principle that we need to look at for a moment this morning. And that principle is this. Your sin, my sin, our depravity, as some might call it, it distorts our view of ourselves and of God in a fundamental way. Listen to how the Bible describes the state of every human being's heart that is before we come to faith. In Psalm 53, 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. So we're talking about an unbeliever, right? They are, that person, it says, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them is turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then listen to how Solomon describes this same situation in one verse out of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. He says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Here's what you're hearing from those two passages. First, you're hearing that the heart of the human being as we're born, that is, in the state we come into the world, The Bible calls that the natural state that we have. The natural state of man is to have a heart desperately wicked, which Solomon describes quite accurately as a form of insanity. Think of it as spiritual insanity. And what does insanity mean? In a simple sense, insanity is when you do or say things that normal people look at and say, that's not even sensible. That makes no sense at all. 
And the Bible says every single one of us is born with that kind of insanity in our hearts, this spiritual insanity where we are literally incapable of knowing or loving God. And that condition lasts throughout our lives. Solomon says afterwards we go to the dead. It's, it's the condition we have unless and until something changes it. We are programmed from birth to sin. Think of it as a spiritual birth defect that we all get. And that nature causes us to disobey and to hate God and yet at the same time call what we do good in our own eyes. And if that spiritual insanity is not cured by God, there is no cure within ourselves or anywhere else. Only if you're born again by the Spirit of God do you come to know God and love God and obey God and follow God because that spiritual insanity is once and forever put out of you by God coming to you through faith. So an unbeliever will by nature always see themselves self-righteously while at the same time treating God as an enemy even as they may claim to worship a God of their own design in some form. But the true God, no, the true God they hate even if they don't understand that. And that's what you're seeing in this trial. Look at this trial again from that point of view. You have men who are supposedly priests of God. Supposedly they represent him. Supposedly they know his law well. And they are the ones leading a kangaroo court into the condemnation of God himself. And they scheme, they lie, they find fault where there's obviously none. And the more righteously Jesus acts toward them, the more their insanity toward him increases. So that by the end of it, they're just acting completely irrationally against him. As if they don't even notice their own words, their own thoughts. Jesus actually explains this phenomenon to us at one point in the Gospels. You know in chapter 3 of John's Gospel when he meets Nicodemus, the Pharisee. And Nicodemus comes to him at night asking him, really, explain this salvation thing you're pitching because I don't get it. And Jesus, you know, that's where you hear John 3.16 among other famous verses in that chapter. But there's a section a little later in that chapter that's important to what we're studying here. And I don't know if you remember these verses quite so well. John 3.19, it says this. This is God's judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now, you remember what we just read out of Psalm 51, uh, 53 rather, and Ecclesiastes 9. So keep that in the back of your mind and let me ask you a question of what Jesus just said in John 3.20. He says, for everyone who does evil, all right, according to Psalm 53, how many people do evil? All, let's see, it says here, Every one of them is turned aside. Together they'd be corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Okay, so the premise is, of all the people who do evil, Bible says that's everyone. So, for everyone who does evil, hates the light. The light, of course, is Jesus. The truth of the gospel as embodied in Christ and in the word. So, how many people in the world hate this and hate Jesus? Everyone. From birth, everyone, every human being comes into the world that way, according to Jesus. And then, listen to this, everyone who hates evil, or everyone who does evil, that's everyone, hates the light, that's everyone, and does not come to the light. That's why earlier in Psalm 53, it says, God looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands or who seeks after God, and the answer is no. No one seeks for God. No, not one. Everyone hates the light. Everyone will not, not come to the light. 
And Jesus goes on to say, well, why is it that no one's coming to the light? Well, because the light of God exposes the evil deeds in men's hearts. Now, you're looking at me right now with the obvious question. Well, wait a minute, I've come to the light. I'm sitting here. Others have obviously done the same. How did we ever get there? Well, the answer has to be something outside ourselves, doesn't it? I mean, if everyone starts the same way and everyone has this birth defect, this spiritual insanity, remember, what do insane people do, generally speaking? They see and hear and and, and believe things that are self-evidently wrong, and everyone else can see them, and they wonder, why don't you see it? That's what this spiritual insanity does to the human being. Jesus is clearly sinless. He's clearly the Son of God. He did miracle after miracle after miracle, no doubt, easy to see, and yet... These men are calling him unjust and blasphemous. It's insanity. Why? Because they are like everyone else, really. Born evil, with a heart that is depraved, living in darkness, and unwilling to see their evil deeds exposed by the light. And until and unless God changes their heart so that that insanity is cured by his grace, they cannot come to know him. They cannot come to seek him. They cannot come into the light. They're like cockroaches. You turn the light on, they run into the couch. Not in my house, I'm talking theoretically. <laughs> I could see the judgment out there right now. <laughs> when he says that they hate the light because it exposes their sinful deeds, he's speaking both literally and figuratively. That is, literally, evil people prefer to practice their evil deeds under cover of darkness. You know, it's no mystery why when the sun sets, then the evil things happen in the streets and the evil things, there is a spiritual principle behind why that is true. That's why you install security lights on your homes and businesses to scare away the evil. I mean, it works for a reason, okay? Chasing the criminals away. But this is also figuratively, or we might say spiritually true, that because of the light of God's word, this exposes evil because it stands for truth and anything opposed to it is by definition evil, when it exposes that we are wrong, that we are sinful, I like, I like to tell people all the time when they're, when they're not believing and I'm trying to help them understand their situation, you know, the, 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 the fast way is to say, you're not all right the way you are. You're not good the way you are. You are not okay. You are in a bad place before God. You are the opposite of okay. And that is because your nature is programmed to sin and to hate God and to hate the truth. And what this does when it comes into that person's view is it exposes that. That's why salvation always begins with repentance. You must first acknowledge, I'm not okay. And if I stay the way I am, I'm in big trouble. And if I go to my death this way, I will forever regret it. So this opens that conversation by exposing the evil. And then as it does its work in the heart, we come to recognize that we can go into the light because in the light is not judgment, but grace and mercy, and forgiveness, and that allows us to walk into that light. That is the knowledge of God's goodness. What is it that brings us to repentance? The kindness of God, Paul says. So in this case, when God brings the light of the world into this darkness, he brought Jesus into this room with these men, they hated that exposure, and they sought to put out that light. And that is the scene we're watching here. They were being exposed, they could not stand for it, and so they went against him. And you need to understand how much insanity was driving their behavior. Think about it this way. If they were self-aware, if they understood this thing that we're talking about, this is what they would have been saying. 
boy, we, we really hate this righteous man. He makes us feel so convicted for being evil. Didn't hear that anywhere, did we? They're not saying that, right? Because they don't think that. Because insanity makes you believe and think things that aren't true, that are self-evidently wrong. They're suffering by that insanity, and that's what's leading them to convict the innocent man Jesus, the God incarnate, for blasphemy, when it's self-evidently not here. You know, earlier the high priest said this, this is out of John's gospel, but going back a few months or, or so before this moment, when they were conspiring against Jesus, they met with the high priest, and listen to what he said about their plans in John eleven forty seven. It says, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, what are we going to do for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he was speaking prophetically there about things he didn't even understand himself. But in his own way of thinking, what he was saying is, this man needs to die so that we get what we want And the funniest thing, the strangest thing about that whole moment, the moment that proves their insanity is the way they opened up. What are we going to do? This man is performing so many signs. Hello? What does that tell you? What do those signs mean? What should you then do in response to those signs, right? If a guy can do miraculous signs, there's something there you ought to think about. You see the insanity? They acknowledge what's true and they come to a completely opposite view of what it means. That is, in a nutshell, what happens in the human heart for every unbeliever until and unless God changes their heart. They must be born again because the first time they were born is what created the problem. And God has the power to do that through us, through our witness, through our testimony, by the word of God. I'm not saying we do it or contribute to it, but I'm saying he can use us to do it. But it's knowing he has the power to do that that gives us the reason and the confidence to go out speaking the gospel to other people. That is your reason to preach, because he can change someone's heart. Not because you can, but because he can. All right, the light of the world rejected by darkness, because they don't want their evil deeds exposed. And the high priest now demands an immediate guilty verdict without deliberation. And you hear the rest of the council all speak as one voice. They all say he is guilty, or they all say he deserves death, and You'd think at this point, okay, well, now they're ready to go to, to the next step in the process. But before we look at that, I want you to just note a couple more violations of Jewish law here, just to put the cap on this so you see how depraved they were. Under Jewish law, a sentence could not be pronounced on the same day as a verdict in a capital crime. In fact, they had to be separated by three days, which gave some time for further thinking about it. Didn't want that here, of course. They just wanted revenge. Second problem, and I love this one, the Sanhedrin trial could not be uh, settled by unanimous verdict. Under Jewish law, it was impossible for a man to be convicted or exonerated by unanimous verdict. No Sanhedrin trial could end with a unanimous verdict. And you think, well, why not? That would seem to be the way, the way you'd want it, right? Yeah, but in Jewish thinking, they believed that it was impossible for 70 Jewish men to agree on anything. And so if 70 Jewish men agreed on something, they considered it proof of a conspiracy. So at least one guy had to vote not guilty or guilty, whatever was opposite from the rest. At least somebody had to disagree or the verdict was not valid. Here you see a unanimous verdict, which, by the way, is in fact proof of a conspiracy in this case. Anyway, more by some counts, 25 or 30 of these mistakes were being made. 
Anyway, as the trial ends, as I said, this, this would seem to settle it for Jesus, except it can't, because under Roman occupation, the Jews did not have the power to put Jesus to death. We covered this in an earlier week. The right of the sword, which is a term that means the right to execute somebody, that was held by Rome alone. They reserved that right for the governor, the procurator of Judea, a Roman official who in this day was a man named Pilate, Pilatus in, in uh, Latin was his actual name. He was a politician appointed by the Roman Senate to rule this province of Judea, and in Roman thinking, he had one job, one thing, keep the peace. If he kept the peace, he could be there for a while. If he didn't keep the peace, he'd be out in a second. That was all Roman care, Rome cared about. So you can imagine from Pilate's point of view, his first and only priority is keeping the peace. And you'll see that reflected in the kind of waffling this man does as he goes back and forth in the trial of Jesus. We'll cover that in coming weeks. But this is the handoff now moment now. This is when Jesus gets moved from the Jews to the Romans. We talked last week about the way that God has implicated both Greek and Jew in the death of Christ through this process, and that's important. And this handover is a part of that. But... Before the Jews hand him over, this is their last chance. Once they give him over to the Romans, they're off. They, they can't touch him at that point. He's completely out of their control, and they're going to have nothing at that point except the hope to influence Pilate. But for now, before they do that, he's still theirs. So they get one last chance to abuse the man that they have hated for months and years. Verse 67. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who's the one who hit you? All right, this is the beginning of the physical torture of Christ, which, of course, we get into more and more as we go deeper into the story. Uh, as you look at these early offenses, you know, you might be tempted to think, well, I know this wasn't fun, but this isn't really the bad stuff. That's coming. And yes, it does get much worse, but... Don't underestimate what's happening right now. Uh, these are some of the worst possible ways one Jew could treat another in their culture, and they were painful. You have the spitting in Jesus' face. Now, now, spitting in Jewish mind, in the Jewish culture, the Jewish mindset, it's a very strong insult. And if you wanted evidence of that, you may know this already, but in uh, Orthodox Jewish circles today, if you speak the name of Jesus, they spit on the ground. That will be a common response from an Orthodox Jew. You say Jesus, I mean in the middle of the sentence, they just spit. As a way of showing contempt for that reference. And this is, you know, it shows you how seriously they take this. Never mind the fact that having someone spit in your face is not pleasant. Uh, secondly, they slap Jesus with an open palm. Now here again, it seems eh, like, almost like girly. Oh, how much could that really hurt? All right. You need to understand, when I say slap, I want you to imagine a grown man taking the hardest swing he can at you with an open hand on, on your face. I mean, swinging for the fences. That's what they're doing here. Uh, the, the, the sting would take your breath away. And not just once, right? They're repeatedly doing this to him. And they did this, and it was a, a form of rebuke also, but it also didn't leave as much of a mark as it would if you punched somebody, so it was a way of abusing someone uh, for longer and with less evidence. And then finally, it says they beat him and they ask him, uh, who hit you? Now, what Matthew doesn't record that it's recorded elsewhere is that he's blindfolded at this point. And that's important because you know how if someone's gonna hit you or something's gonna flying at you, you know how you have that instinctive defense response? You, your muscles tighten up to take the blow. 
you tend to move your body in a way that the less vulnerable parts of your body take the blow. It's just instinctive. Your body kind of knows to protect the, the organs, you know, to do something to protect yourself. If something's flying at your face, you know, you do that. And when you don't know what's coming, you're not in a position. Even if you try, you'd be in the wrong place. And so when they cover him, they blindfold him, it makes them easier, makes it easier for them to inflict serious pain against his body without Jesus being in a position to defend himself. But it's actually worse than that because Jesus wasn't doing anything to defend himself. Isaiah tells us exactly how he faced that moment. Isaiah 50, verse five. This is Jesus speaking. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was, I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. Here's what you're learning. Isaiah says explicitly, the Messiah did not want to be disobedient to what God the Father had ordained for him in this experience. He would not turn back from it. Now you and I hear that in one particular way. We hear it as, oh, he went through with it. And that's true. But that's not all that he means. And the rest of the text tells you that. In verse six, it says he did not cover his face to the spitting, which then would imply also to the slapping. When he might have had the opportunity, he didn't. And it says he turned his back to those who strike him. That's a reference to the scourging. That is, he didn't try to stop and and minimize or deflect. He he went right at it. I'll take the full brunt of it, in other words. Not in some kind of you know, machokistic or, or, or whatever. I mean, in the sense of God wants it, I'm going to let it happen. I'll do nothing to stop it. And even then, we hear of a new thing here, plucking out the beard. Matthew didn't mention that, but here we find out that was a part of the, the torture as well. Have you ever pulled out a single hair from somewhere on your face and then the, the tear just shows up right after that, right? You know the feeling? All right, so they're taking out handfuls of his beard which is another very Jewish thing of humiliating someone to remove their beard. <laughs> and, and, was, and he's standing there, it says his face is like flint. A flint is a very hard rock, very hard mineral. And the, the metaphor there is expressionless, not flinching, not deflecting, not turning, not just standing there and taking every single blow with no attempt to deflect or, as it says, to turn back. He felt the pain like you would. He, it hurt as much. In fact, there are references throughout the New Testament to his suffering in all of this as he goes through with it. But the thing you're learning is he accepted that torture as the will of the Father and he could not do anything to deflect it. Otherwise, he would have been disobedient. Now look at the determination of Christ to be obedient here and understand it. If he had even done as so much as this to a slap, that would have been disobedience because he is turning away from what God the Father was delivering. You see the, how, how much even in that little detail Jesus was true to the plan of God. It made his suffering worse, but it also meant he didn't diminish it, which would have been against the plan of God. The writer of Hebrews says it this way briefly in 12, chapter 12, verse two. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice he says he endured the cross, and I think that's a reference of everything, to come 
before and the cross included. And then it says he despised the shame. He despised this. He despised everything about it. He despised the experience. He despised the shame of it. He despised the feeling of pain that came out of it. I mean, he could barely stand it. He's a human being. God, yes, but no less man. He's a human being experiencing this. And even in the way we would minimize what we could, he did none of that. He went through it as a matter of obedience for the opportunity to achieve something eternally important. And the writer reminds us, you and I should carry exactly the same attitude in our trials and in our suffering. Here's what you're learning. Obedience to God under the circumstance of righteous suffering requires an acceptance of it and no attempt to escape it. That's not something you hear every day in church. Some of you are thinking, honey, I want a better church. Can we go to that one that tells us life will be great as a Christian? Oh, it'll be great, but not every day. And not until we're in our glory, not for sure. The worst of his suffering was yet to come. Yeah, it's gonna go from bad to worse. The whole experience is probably about 12 hours on the clock from front to back, although I think it probably felt like an eternity at times to Jesus. But it begs a huge question, doesn't it? Why? Why did he have to suffer? Why did he have to go through it? And I've asked the question this way before. You may have heard me say this. Why did Jesus have to suffer? We know why he had to die, but why did he have to suffer on the way? I mean, why couldn't he have died in his sleep? Think about it. The death of Christ paid for your sin. Why did he have to go through the suffering beforehand? Or just maybe, why didn't he get executed in a less painful way? Beheading, even stoning would have been better, right? Why this painful process and all that leads up to it? And the answer you get is that the suffering that Jesus received on the way to the cross is as much a plan of the redemption of God as it is to die on the cross. He required Jesus to experience something painful in our place for the purpose of two reasons. And those two reasons are going to be covered over the next several weeks, but the first of those is today. And that answer comes from Peter. In 1 Peter 2.21, you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. So here's what Peter just said. He said, not only did Jesus have to die to save us, he also had to suffer, and the first reason is so that he could set an example for how to receive suffering. Now let me make something real clear. Peter says it elsewhere in a minute, but we're not talking here about suffering because you made a mistake. You know, when you make a mistake and things come upon you because you made a mistake, that's the natural consequence of mistakes, and that's not the suffering we're talking about here. When the Father in heaven, however, determines that we must suffer for righteousness' sake, that is, unjustly, something happens to us that is not a result of our sin, but because of what the world brings against us. Remember the problem of light and darkness? When you are light and darkness hates that and you suffer as a result of that, then the obedient thing is to accept that suffering. Think about Jesus again for a moment. What would it have meant if Jesus had resisted, even in those small ways, 
the suffering that God appointed for him in the course of going to the cross. It would have been God the Father, or God the Son rather, resisting the will of God the Father. What do we call it when you go against the will of God? Sin. Now think about this for a minute. If he resists the suffering, he sins. If he sins, he's no longer the spotless, sinless sacrifice. No longer does his death mean anything. All of a sudden, because he resisted suffering, the whole purpose in the suffering is nullified. And that's our example. There are times in your life when God will bring suffering out of righteousness for some good purpose in his economy, and if we resist the suffering that we know is coming against us unjustly, as if to say, well, I can defend myself. I have a right to defend myself. I, I'm being mistreated. This isn't fair. And we resist the God-appointed suffering we are now, contrary to God's will, we are now sinning, and ironically, we have just nullified whatever purpose God had in our suffering. We've given cause to our suffering because we're now sinning. Isn't that an interesting dilemma, kind of a conundrum there? I have to accept it in order for it to have value. Jesus here, in Isaiah 53, we're told Jesus was completely innocent, did nothing wrong, and yet did not fight back, didn't even utter his own defense, and that is our example, Peter says. Now, keep in mind, I'm not saying this is penance. This is not about you doing something to make yourself righteous before God. This is not about you making up for your sins. This is not about you. This is about how God uses suffering in the life of a saint to achieve something good for him in the greater plan of the kingdom, whether that's going to mean making you more sanctified, more patient, more kind, more, more considerate of others, more compassionate for others. Maybe it's going to let your example prove to unbelievers that you are truly of Christ and it might become a witness opportunity for you through that suffering. Maybe it will impress upon somebody else the importance of serving Christ when they're not doing much for their Lord. I mean, who knows how he can use it? But the point is the moment we turn against it, we nullify those benefits, potentially. The godly response to injustice is to endure it patiently, knowing God brought it for some good purpose. Listen to what Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 2.19. He says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And then he asks the obvious question, What credit is there if when you sin and you're treated harshly, you endure it with patience? That's just saying, what what benefit is there when you mess up and something bad happens because you messed up? There's nothing in that for you. That's just consequence. But he says, when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently, enduring it, this finds favor with God. So if you say to yourself, you know, it's not right that I should have to do this. I have rights. I should defend myself. I shouldn't have to be somebody else's floor mat. You know, shouldn't be walked all over by somebody. All right, well, look, let me tell you, the Bible is telling you right now it's not about your rights. You know, you have rights as an American. Well, we're not talking about your American rights. We're talking about your biblical rights. You don't have rights here. It's about your obedience. That's your right. Be obedient. That's our right. If you do that and you suffer anyway and you endure it, you will find favor with God. And that favor has eternal consequences. Well beyond this life, when you enter into the kingdom and then you'll see how it affected what God was prepared to do for you there. And if God the Father could turn his son's suffering into good, then how much more can he take the suffering of the likes of us? Right? If he was willing to do that to his own son and he used it to save the whole world, well then he can certainly find a way to make something good out of a moment that you might have here or there.
if you let it work in the right way. So the first reason why Jesus was called to suffer even before he died is to set an example for how all believers will be asked to live throughout history in the face of the same. Because his light walked into a darkness that's still here with us today and we are the representatives of that light now. So we're not above our master. What was true for him will be true for us. I, I tend to, this is a little saying, it's not always true, but it's a little saying I use. If you are a Christian and have been for any real length of time, and you have never suffered for your faith in any meaningful way, it's probably because you're not showing it. Right? If you are not showing your faith, then you are not light. If you're not light, the darkness doesn't care about you. As soon as you are light into darkness, watch what happens. I'm not saying you'll be put on a cross, God forbid. Something will happen, and it'll happen every day in a little way here or there, and it'll become part of how you understand what it means to be light in darkness. And in many cases, God will use it to do great things around you, and you'll see that. But you'll suffer along the way. It just goes with the territory. There is no easy Christian life. There's just an obedient one. That's what Jesus is showing us here. We'll get to the second reason in another lesson. But there's, a, there's an irony here as we end that is just too good to pass up, and I know we're kind of at the limit of time. I wanna just cover this to finish today because it's so good. It comes out of Peter. Remember, Peter's the one who just taught us all this. That is, Peter gives us the understanding of his suffering and the purpose in it, but then look where we go next in the story as we finish this chapter. How ironic is it that Peter is the one telling us about suffering and, and dealing with persecution when we see how he handled it in chapter 26, verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you two were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives it away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. All right, well, we, we studied this a lot in the previous lesson on the Last Supper where Jesus gave this prophecy. We can shortcut this a little and not go through all of that again. I just want to look at how he actually does it. Now, remember, he's in a courtyard outside the home of the, of the high priest Caiaphas. Remember how he got there? John uh, knew the family of the high priest, so John got in because he was a familiar face. When John got in, he then talked to the guard and got his friend Peter in with him. That's how Peter got into this moment. Why is Peter so close to, to Jesus? Why is he doing this? Why is he following so closely? Let me submit to you that after he heard Jesus tell him back at the Last Supper, you're gonna deny me? Well, actually, Jesus started this way. He said to all the apostles, you're all gonna leave me. And what did Peter say? Well, they may all leave you, but I'm never gonna leave you. And that's what led to Jesus saying, oh yeah, well, here's what you're gonna do. And then he's been following closely ever since, I think, because he wants to prove to Jesus, I'm not gonna do what you told me I'm gonna do which is ironic because it was being here that put him in the position that now he will deny Jesus three times, right? A proof, once again, that when God's word has gone forth, it will not return to him without first having accomplished all that he intended. And also a reminder that pride goes before the fall. So here you have a servant girl, sees Peter, says, you're one of those Galileans, right? And he quickly says, I don't know what you're talking about, first denial. 
Then that causes him to get up and leave the courtyard. As he's going out to the gate, second servant girl says, oh yeah, you're with Jesus of Nazareth. No, no, forcefully, he says, I do not know him. And then he adds an oath, which means he swore before God. By the name of God, I do not know Jesus. That's what Peter said. Then he gets outside the courtyard, and some of those that heard him from the inside follow him out there. I mean, this is happening in rapid succession within a few minutes. And he goes out, and they say, yeah, yeah, we know you're with him because you sound like a Galilean. Apparently, the Galilee was Israel's version of the Deep South because you knew as soon as the guy opened his mouth where he was from. And at that point, Peter loses it. He starts cursing. You ever imagine that? Our, our beloved apostle Peter cursing, swearing. I don't know the man. And of course, at that point, famously, the rooster, and he hears the rooster, and it call clicks, and he goes off weeping. You know, the shame of this is he didn't have to do any of this. I mean, think about it. John was there with him. No one's accusing John. John's not getting in trouble. No one's getting anyone in trouble. I don't think there was any chance John or Peter was ever going to get in trouble. Even if they had said, yes, I know him, there's no evidence that was going to lead to anything, right? And I don't think Jesus wanted them in trouble. Obviously, he didn't have intent for either of these men to be caught up in the events that night. That was not where all this started. All of this started with Jesus simply saying, Scripture says that all of you are going to leave me, and Peter said in his pride, that Bible verse doesn't apply to me. I've heard a lot of Christians say that. Oh, that doesn't apply to me. I don't believe that verse. You know what God does when we say that doesn't apply to me? He took Peter, put him in a place, made Peter, you know, put Peter in a position to deny him three times so that Peter can see, yep, I guess that did apply to you after all. In fact, that applied to you and what I said applied to you as well. It gives you the impression that this whole thing would not have even happened if Peter had not opened his mouth in the Last Supper. If he had just gone with it and said, oh, I guess that's going to happen to all of us, he'd have, been, he'd have been left out of this moment. So this is an example of what happens when we thumb our nose at the word of God. God has this really interesting way of bringing it back home so that we remember, yeah, I guess everything in this book does apply to me. There are no exceptions. So when you look at what Peter does here and you wonder how could he have done this, I wouldn't have done this, let me, let me remind you of what was going on. In that day, houses did not have windows. There was no glass. So a window was just an opening in the wall. And in the courtyard, as Peter is being asked, do you know this man? Here's what he's hearing and seeing. He is seeing Jesus being beaten mercilessly. He is hearing the slaps. He is hearing the body blows. He, he may be hearing Jesus gasping for breath. He may be hearing moans of pain with each blow. And he has heard the council declare Jesus is going to die for blasphemy. All of that's happening while someone else says, oh, you're with that guy, right? I mean, if you had heard and seen those same things and then been asked that question, you might have denied Jesus too. You might have done it three times. So, what do we make of this moment? It's just exactly what it appears to be. A scared man saying stupid things without thinking in order to save his own skin. And you know what? If we're not so different from Peter after all, then there is hope for all of us. And why do I say that? Because as I finish today, I want you to remember something else Peter wrote. The same guy who denied Christ under the pressure of that persecution and suffering moment said this later in his life. 1 Peter 3.14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, and be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you 
to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, i.e., no swearing. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. You know, you could do much worse than be like Peter. And we all start somewhere in our walk with Christ. We all end somewhere. You can't control where you start, but you have a whole lot to say about where you finish. Peter started in the way that we all remember him, and we, we make fun of him a little, and we think tisk tisk about him. But you know, that's not the standard. The standard is where did Peter end, and where are you? Hopefully, we will all end like Peter did, thinking like he did and taking what he was willing to take at the end of his life, because that's a man who grew, and I think we all can, can do worse than grow as much as Peter did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to recognize moments that you ordain for us to suffer for Christ's sake out of a life of righteous living and to make the very most of them by accepting the suffering with gentleness, with reverence, ready to make a defense for why we retain our hope even in the face of it. And Father, use it to your advantage in some way. Don't let our suffering be for nothing when it comes. And Father, forgive us when we suffer for our own sake and help us to make better choices so that that won't be the case the next time. And in all that we do, Father, help us to live with eyes for eternity with an appreciation that our days are short and that our opportunities are fleeting and we want to make the most of them. And I know, Father, that you have that desire for us as well. Use our time in this church and among each other to benefit us in that regard. And thank you for a church that cares about these things, Father. I pray you in in Jesus' name, amen.